exists to help college students know Jesus Christ. And uh, that's why we've gathered, and I don't know why you're here tonight, but we hope that we can help in whatever you're searching for, looking for. Some of you are carrying heavy burdens. Some of you are just excited to be have something on the calendar for Friday night. So you're not sitting at home watching, uh, binge watching Netflix. Some of you are here to connect with others, to be encouraged, hopefully to hear the word of God. Uh, I'm not sure why you're here, but I'm really glad and we're glad. And even this tight group tonight, it's kind of nice actually. It's a little more family style, which is really cool. Uh, we are studying the gospel of John and have been doing that since the beginning of the school year. But we're going to take a break for the next little bit. And uh, tonight we're going to shift to a more theological issue. Okay, so I'm warning you up front. This is going to be a little heavier and a little deeper than what we've typically been doing. Uh, We're going to answer a series of questions over the next two Friday nights that deal with God, that deal with man, and that deal with our salvation. Fair? Okay. (laughs) If you said no, it wouldn't matter because we're still (laughs) doing it anyway. Let me begin by saying that the human soul has an infinite value. Your soul has an infinite value. This is why Jesus posed the question in Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet what? And yet lose his soul. So when we look at the salvation of the human soul, it is also of infinite worth. Said a different way, if you're worried about your next paycheck and how you're going to pay your bills, then you're normal. If you're worried about saving up money so you can move out in the future, or buy a car, um, get an apartment, then you're still relatively normal. If you're thinking about retirement and the long-term future, more than likely you're a bit abnormal at this age, even though I would encourage you to do that. Okay? And if you're thinking about your eternal future, then you are a rare breed. Because most young people, in fact, most human beings, don't want to think about death or what happens after death. Most people don't want to allow their minds to dwell on what happens after they die. They will deal with that someday when they're older, when they're settled down. Uh, Then they'll think about these more serious things. And so we deceive ourselves into thinking, I'll put this off down the road. But it's foolishness not to consider your eternal soul. Because listen carefully, a miscalculation here is not like a check bouncing. It's not like, oh no, I'm going to carry a balance on my credit card to the next month. A miscalculation here means that you come short of heaven. It is your eternal destiny, and that is, like I've been saying, a big deal. And so I want you to consider your eternity tonight, to look at your undying, immortal soul, and to consider what salvation is. So like I said, this week and next week, we're going to dive deep into the scriptures, deep into theology, deep into some doctrine that is pretty heavy. Um, You're going to have to buckle up. You're going to have to be just thinking on this if you're going to stay with it. Uh, So again, uh, forewarning you on that. But we're going to answer the following questions. Is God sovereign over man's salvation? Is God in control over salvation? Does God's sovereignty, listen to this one, cancel out man's responsibility? Does man choose God? Or does God choose man? Does man have free will? For whom did Christ die? For everybody or for a select few? And how about this question? Can you, once having salvation, can you 
at some point lose it. Well, that's a lot to work through, but our theme is a bigger topic that we call the doctrines of grace. Uh, To say it a different way, it's the sovereignty of God and salvation. Or you may have heard the topic of Calvinism. If you understand that, it's a theological grid versus Arminianism. And uh, we're going to enter into a debate that has raged since the early church fathers and is still alive and well today. And so let me define these two systems of thought, these two doctrines for you, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into the topic. I'm just going to answer questions tonight. That will be our, our outline, but we'll get there in a minute. On the one hand, you have the Arminian doctrine. Named for, does anybody know? Professor? Jacobus Arminius. Jacobus. See, I had it as Jacob Arminius because he's from where? Um, the Netherlands. Yes, yeah, somewhere in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> Jacobus Arminius. Jacob Arminius. Uh, it extols this, this series. So, so pay attention really quick. You've got two systems of thought. You've got Arminianism, which extols the value of man's choice. It teaches that man is sinful and that man needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been offered to all freely. As an autonomous being who has free will, man has the choice to accept or reject the offer of salvation. Those who accept in faith are elected based on their faith and choice of Christ. This is called conditional election. That is that God knew beforehand what man would do, and so he elected those to salvation. A person that chooses Christ will be secure in Christ as long as they remain in Christ. But if they turn from Christ, they may in fact lose their salvation. Arminianism. On the other side, you have Calvinism. Named after? Oh, wow, look at all you bookworms. John Calvin, who had no idea this happened, this this whole firing happened long after he died, and he was kind of pinned with this title. But um, Calvinism extols the sovereignty of God in in the salvation of sinners, and it's broken down into five points, which you may or may not have heard. There's an acronym called TULIP, Total depravity, you guys are familiar with this, right? Unconditional election, (laughs) limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Saints. What it says is this. It states that man is inherently sinful and that on his own he will never choose God. It then looks at something called unconditional election, which we also call predestination, which teaches that God has elected or chosen certain sinners for salvation, not based on their actions, but on his gracious choice. He then calls them in time through the gospel message. This highlights a limited atonement, which means that Christ only died for the elect. And it also teaches that once a person is saved, they will never forfeit or lose their salvation. In other words, once saved, always saved. Now, these two positions square against each other. And we want to look at the scripture to see what they say. Fair? That's where we're going tonight and next Friday. Now, let me give you just a couple of uh, preambles or uh, Uh, thoughts to to, uh, frame our conversation tonight. The first is this. When you're looking at salvation and trying to understand eternity and all that goes into uh, what we're talking about so far, you have to remember, first of all, the Bible is our authority. And so we must come to the scripture, not emptying out our minds, but coming with a blank sheet, not bringing our preconceived notions, not carrying our presuppositions, or our biases or tradition, or what we think God should do, we must look at what the scripture says and let that be our guide. It is our authority. It is inspired and infallible and errant. It's sufficient. It is the word of God. Psalm 19.7 says the, word, the law of the Lord is what? Anybody know? It is perfect. That's right. 
The Bible is full of thus saith the Lord's. You can't say I don't believe that or that must be wrong or I'll just ignore that part because it doesn't make sense to me. It's too difficult. You can't, right? If, if the Bible says it, we must believe it. Secondly, all theological systems ultimately fall short. They do. They do. We do our best humanly to put doctrines into categories and organize them into systems. And it's an effective way for us to wrap our minds around certain truths. For example, you have theology proper, which is the study of God himself. We just did um, systematic theology in Radix last semester. We're doing practical theology this semester. If you don't know what those words mean, let me just give you some of the ideas that will help. Uh, so theology proper is the study of God. Christology is the study of Jesus Christ. Pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. I got this one. Glutenology is the study of wheat and all the delights of bread. <laughs> That's somewhere should be in there. But, it, but on and on and on. These are the systematic theologies with which we understand who God is, who man is, and what the Bible teaches. Then you have practical theology, which goes, we're not going to get into that tonight. That's radix. But that's how these things apply into our lives in various situations. So when we try to take the infinite mind of God, coupled with his limitless love in redeeming sinners, and condense it down to five simple truths that form an outline that makes a flower, tulip, with no overlap and no issues, you know there's going to be problems. Okay? That's just where we're at. And so while the monikers can be helpful, I'm a Calvinist, I'm reformed, I believe in the doctrines of grace, we get an idea of where a person stands and that's good, but ultimately I don't want to be known as a Calvinist. I want to be known as a biblicist, right? I want to be known as someone that takes the word of God at face value and believes what it teaches. When asked how much a preacher should know and read the scripture and trust it, Charles Spurgeon said this, cut him anywhere and you will find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He can't speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the word of God. And certainly that's how it should be for us, right? That's who we should be, trusting the scripture. So we've just said that um, the Bible's our authority, and secondly, that theological systems will fall short. Third and finally, do not resolve biblical tensions. Let them lie. All right? Let them be. The Bible is filled with paradoxes or seeming contradictions. I'm not going to go into a, a, any except for one. Go ahead and try to figure out the Trinity. That is a contradiction to the human mind. You cannot have three and one and one and three. It, you, you think, yeah, no, I get the Trinity. I, I've grown up. Da, 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 da. It's an egg. It's water. It's whatever. No, it doesn't work. All right? You can't get there when you really do the math on it. Sometimes we need to take a step back and remember the Excuse me, and remember that the Bible is written by God Himself, and there are some aspects of it that we will never understand. Job 11, verse 7 says, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? That's simple reality. God's greater. But even still, we're, we are to be like the noble Bereans who in Acts 17, it says they received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. We should be going back to the Bible and studying to understand. And when our understanding fails and the systems don't get there, we go to Deuteronomy 29, 29, which says the deep things belong to the Lord. The problem is most people punt too early. Well, I can't get that. And so the deep things belong to the Lord. It's like punting on second down. 
right? You don't go deep enough. You don't buckle down and do the work to really understand it. And I just can't get the fact that a loving God would send people to hell or that why all this is in there. And we just say, well, these things belong to God. I don't need to worry about it. But that's not what the scripture says. We are called to study it, to know it, and to fight to understand as much as we can. And then at that point to say, and I trust in an infinite God beyond this. So having said all this, let's dive in. Tonight we're going to answer three questions. Next Friday we're going to answer three more questions. Okay? Question number one. For Alex who's taking notes. Okay. Question number one (laughs) is, who is in control of your salvation? Who is in control of your salvation? The answer, quite simply, is God. I'm not breaking any new ground tonight, I get that, but God is in control of your salvation the same way that he's in control of all things. And this is where we must begin as we explore the topic um, with God himself. A man named Kurt Daniels who wrote a great book called Systematic Calvinism, he said this, to say it quite simply, God is God. He has always been and he always will be exactly that, God. Now, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter one, verse one. As John Stead would say, this is where baseball is mentioned in the Bible because it's in the beginning. You've heard that before, but you probably haven't heard that he also tells you that in Matthew 6, it says that for basketball is in the Bible where it says you must lay up treasures in heaven. So anyway, we're not going to talk about that. But Genesis 1, 1, I want you to see this and set your eyes on God. It says there in three words, in the beginning, God. He was there before the universe. In fact, he has always been. He was all there was. He is the uncreated one. Before man or animals or stars or devils or anything else, there was God, the self-existent Trinity. Deuteronomy 33, 27 says that he is the eternal God. Revelation chapter one, verse eight says, he who is and who was and who is is to come, the almighty. He is the creator, and Colossians 1.17 says that in him all things hold together. He is self-sufficient. He is all-powerful. He depends on nobody for the origin of his existence, the sustaining of his being, or of his future essence. He said to Moses simply in Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. He is transcendent, that is, he's far above all things. Isaiah 6 verse 3 says that he is lofty and exalted. He is, in fact, infinitely above creation and is fundamentally very different from us. That's why the the psalmist, the psalmist says in Psalm 50, 21, you thought that I was just like you, God speaking. The, The implied answer, but I'm not. I'm unlike creation. Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, listen to this, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. He has all knowledge, which is to say that he never acquires new information, nor does he ever make a mistake. And he's perfect in all of his ways. In addition, we're just setting the table here for who God is. In addition, he is completely independent of any outside force. That is to say he's totally free to do whatever he chooses to do simply because he so chooses. Ephesians 1.1 says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Psalm 115 says that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. 
He acts according to his own pleasure. He needs no permission, nor does he seek approval for what he does. That's why Isaiah says in chapter 40, who has been his counselor? The answer, no one. And all of this leads to the pinnacle of his attributes, the sovereignty of God. Uh, we could say it, it is the godness of God. Simply put, God is king. He was king before creation. He is now king over all that exists. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Or put simply in Revelation 19.6, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. His is a divine monarchy. As king, he rules over his creation, exercising his will and accomplishing his purpose, and none can stay his hand. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he reigns in supremacy. Supremacy. And while this is only the tip of the iceberg, right, as it deals with the infinite nature of God, it is enough for us to answer the question that I posed to you a few minutes ago. Who is in control of your salvation? Having seen all of that scripture and all that that would say about who God is, the answer of who is in control of your salvation is that God is. God is in control. It's unmistakable and unarguable. As the one who controls all things, God is ultimately responsible for the salvation of sinners. And so we set the table with this knowledge, a high view of God, not only in all things, but certainly in our salvation. And then all else will flow from this. Got it? That's the answer number one. But one of the struggles that immediately comes out of this doctrine, one of the things for us that we will immediately ask is, well, what about human responsibility? If God truly is sovereign... If God truly controls all things, then how can he hold man responsible? You, you feel a little bit of tension there? Does man really have free will? Can man choose God on his own? Can, can he do that? That's the question. So number two, let's just say it this way. If God is sovereign, is man still responsible? If God is sovereign, is man still responsible? Harmonizing human responsibility with divine sovereignty is one of the greatest puzzles in theology. And maybe you've dealt with this and struggled with this in your own hearts. Many would deny one or the other and some would deny both, but we are not able to do this and still hold to the scriptures. So let me help you here. We've already established the sovereignty of God. Let's establish human responsibility. Okay, let me define it. It is the aspect of human personality called the will. It is the idea that man is accountable to a greater law. Human responsibility, there is a greater law that man is accountable to. It implies that there is a certain morality that he is called to live by. This moral code is based on the character of God himself and has been clearly laid out Excuse me, in the revealed word of God uh, for us to see. Human responsibility implies that man has a choice between at least two different options. Some would argue that man's will could be neutral, somewhere between right and wrong, but this is not what the Bible says. The Bible makes it clear that there are two choices, there are two roads, there are two masters, and there are two and only two destinations. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me in Matthew 12, verse 30. And he also said that no man can serve two masters in Matthew 6, 24. It is one or the other, it is never neither, and it is never both. So is man responsible? The answer, according to the scripture, 
is yes. Now you're still in Genesis 1, hopefully. So flip over to Genesis 2 and let's look at verse 15 together. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. That is human responsibility right there, laid out by God himself. You have a choice. You have what I've laid out as my moral code. Don't eat the tree. Don't eat the fruit. And you have a a responsibility then to either choose yes or choose no. The outcome of your life is directly related to the choices that you make. Adam and Eve chose disobedience, didn't they? And the result, according to this verse, was what? You see it in there? The result was, the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Death. Immediate spiritual death. The relationship with God was severely, violently, and permanently ripped apart. And death, in addition to the spiritual aspect of it, was woven into their physical bodies as well. Genesis 3 says, to dust you shall return. And I don't want to belabor this point, but you'll see in Genesis 4 that Cain's murder of Abel brought the judgment of God. Why? Why? Because God held Cain responsible for the act against his brother Abel. You go down to Genesis chapter 6 in the flood, and it says there in verse 4, you don't need to flip there, but it says, The intents of man's heart was only evil continually. So God decided to blot out man from the face of the earth. God's judgment, listen carefully, was a direct result of the actions of man. And we could go on like this throughout the Bible, couldn't we? Achan, who was judged by God for stealing, God, that was a result of his actions, right? And on and on we go. David, sleeping with Bathsheba, first son died. That was the judgment of God. On and on we could go. But let me, let me turn you to a passage that will help to make sense. Go to John 3, verse 36. This makes man's responsibility very clear. John 3:36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life. And we would acknowledge and agree with that wholeheartedly. Salvation comes only through faith in Christ. But check out this next phrase. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What's the point there? What's the point there? If you disobey, God's judgment falls on you. That is human responsibility. We can look at Revelation 20, verse 12. Don't go there, but it says this. The dead were judged, talking about the great white throne judgment, according to their deeds. Is man responsible? The answer is yes. Every person is accountable to the moral standards set down by their creator. Each has the choice to obey or disobey. And God has set aside a day of reckoning to judge every person based on their life. Said a different way, people go to hell because they are sinners, listen carefully, who have chosen to reject God. It's not because they don't know enough or they didn't have a good enough opportunity or because it just didn't make sense or because I just couldn't have faith. It is a, unbelief is a choice people make in disobedience to reject the truth of Christ. You're in John 3, look at verse 18. It says, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. 
And this is the point where many people go off the rails. If God is truly sovereign, as we saw in point number one, then how can man be truly responsible? Right? This is where it gets really difficult. If God causes the sun to rise and set, if he determines the length of each man's days and has orchestrated even the finest details of every life, then how can man be held eternally responsible? Said in a different way, is it fair for a sovereign God to judge those who reject him? That's a fair question. That's a difficult um, one to wrestle with. And that's why I personally call this a five-year doctrine. This is a five-year process, I think, in, in the life of a Christian to understand God's role in salvation and our place in that and to come to terms with what that means. And it ultimately ends, listen to this, with rejection of the truth or with the worship of God. That's the only two options that you have in this. But ultimately, these two sides, uh, these two man's responsibility and God's sovereignty are two sides of the proverbial coin. This is the same truth. This is the same reality. Okay, they are complementary and not contradictory. When asked how he reconciled these two, which seemed to us like this is crazy, again, Spurgeon said this, I never try to reconcile friends. Why are, you, why are you forcing these two things apart? The Bible puts them both out equally. They are both a part of our life, and it's up to us to fight to understand it and then to, to come under God's word and to trust in him. So truthfully, the answer is above our understanding and above our ability to comprehend, but where the scripture presents us with tension, we must allow that tension to lie, okay? Not to explain it away. And the scripture presents both as viable options, not as options, as viable truths in our lives. Why, Philippians 2.12. You wanna go there? This is, it's, it's written right in. Philippians 2.12, let me show this to you. Both sides of this are there. John 3 with Nicodemus, both sides are there also. But Philippians 2.12, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, that's a command to Christians. You are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But watch this. Because, or for, it is God, here's the other side, who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. They're right next to each other across all of scripture. And it's up to us to allow the tension to be there because that's what the scripture teaches. And like Spurgeon says, I never try to reconcile friends. Okay, that leads us to question number three. Our next question is, can man choose God? Can man choose God? If man is responsible for his actions, then no problem, right? Some people choose God, some people don't. You put the Bible in front of some and they choose to believe it. You put it in front of others, they choose to reject it. Seems pretty straightforward. It's an option given to all people, right? But to assume that the will of man is self-determining is a mistake. This is not what the Bible teaches, and this is not what is in the heart of man. <clears throat> We've already seen that man's will is not neutral. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 12, he who is not with me is against me. And now we need to recognize that not only is the will not neutral, but it is also not self-determining. Now, if you're confused, hold on, stay with me. What do I mean by self-determining? The will is not independent. It is not ultimately free. We like to think of ourselves as being in total control of our lives and having the autonomy to live as we desire according to the freedom of our will, right? It's one of the greatest perceived rights that man believes he has. It's often referred to as free will, the ability to choose. It's even in our constitution, 
right? With the right to, to liberty and the pursuit of happiness and all of those things. And to bear arms, James. But, but anyway, this is the free will that man holds to, the ability to choose. That's not, that's not actually true. The will is not independent. It does not exist as a self-determining entity. It is acted on by something that's inside of each one of us. Our nature, are you with me still? Okay, our nature affects our will. So a good nature will produce a good will, which will produce good works. Okay? And a bad nature will produce a bad will, which will produce bad works. That's what Jesus said, right, in Matthew 7, 17. Every tree, every good tree bears good fruit, right? But the bad tree bears bad fruit, and you'll know them by their fruit. Okay? And most people have no problem with this. Good people go to heaven, and bad people don't. All right? We're fine with that. This is part of the underlying belief that man is inherently good. He is upright, he is moral, he is kind. Of course, there are always a few bad seeds, like seeds like the guy who goes into a school and shoots it up, right? Or uh, the Nazi, the ruling class of Nazi Germany. But in general, man is good. So when you're sharing your faith and you ask people if they're, if they're going to heaven when they die, guess how many of them will say yes? It's pretty darn near 100%. What about when you ask them why? Most people will say what? Because they have what? Lived a, lived a good life, right? In a recent poll, people were asked if the, if the population was split into two halves uh, based on how good you are, would you be in the upper half or the lower half? So understand this. You got 50% here, 50% here. So the answer should flow to be what? 50% here and 50% there. Guess what the answer was? Okay, watch this. 98% of people said they were in the top 50%. <laughs> and you just got to know you better watch out for that 2%, okay? <laughs> because that is pretty freaky. That is pretty freaky. But that's human beings believe that they are living good lives because what's in them is good telling that their very nature is also good and kindness will win and love will overcome and the end of every story in Hollywood is a happy ending. But my friends, it's not what the Bible tells us. It does not record a story of the goodness of man and his many virtues that make him worthy of entering into the holy presence of God by his own merit. No, from the very first pages in the garden where our first parents sinned to the very final pages of rebellion at the apocalypse, man is shown to be a cunning, deceitful, wicked, disobedient, arrogant hater of God. Scripture does not recount for us stories of men who are good, but rather tells us about a God who is good and who forbears a sinful and rebellious creation. Said in a different way, man's nature is flawed, damaged, broken, defective, fallen. He is not by nature good. He does not by nature choose good things. He is, or I should say we are sinful, but at the very core, but in our natures. And this sin nature has been passed on to each of us as sons and daughters of Adam. There is not a single part of man that has not been fatally infected by sin. Sin affects our bodies. That's why you fall and crack your skull on a urinal right? You, get, you have illness and disease and weakness and death as part of a, the result of sin for all of us. Sin affects our emotions and our affections. Second Thessalonians 2.12 says that we take pleasure in our wickedness. 
In Titus 2, it says that we have worldly lusts. We have fleshly lusts, 1 Peter 2. We have ungodly lusts, Jude 18. We are all over the place and our desires and emotions are all sinful. Sin affects our minds. Titus 1.5 says even their mind and their conscience is defiled. The very thoughts of man are controlled by sin. He cannot understand spiritual truth. You guys know 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man or an unsaved man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. 2 Corinthians 4 takes it a step farther saying that our minds are blinded and therefore man is unwittingly, excuse me, unwittingly deceived. He lies to himself and believes his own lies that he's a good person. Where Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Or how about Romans 1.22? Professing to be wise, they became fools. Sin affects our conscience and our will. Uh, do you hear this? It affects our bodies. It affects our emotions. It affects our minds. It affects our conscience and our wills. Do you, 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 you know the verses, right? I lost it. Um, Psalm 78.8. He is stubborn. Acts 7.51. He is stiff-necked. Ezekiel 11.19. His heart is hard as a rock. To sum it up, every part of man has been affected by sin. He is sinful in his nature and he is sinful in his heart. Paul said it in Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Or even more indicting is Romans 3, 10. You guys want to turn there? Let's go to Romans 3. You guys can see this in your Bibles. I want you to notice the use of the word none in this because it comes up more than once. Romans 3, verse 10 says there is None righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Let me ask you a question. Is man generally good? The answer is clearly no. But it's worse than this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Because this reveals to us how desperately our state really is. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 is probably the clearest place in scripture that shows us our state before God. And in verse 1 it begins by saying this, and you were what? You were dead. That's a pretty big deal. You were dead, lifeless, you were a corpse, completely and totally unable to respond with no ability to do anything. He's talking about the spiritual heart of man. And he's saying that um, you're dead. Simple. Now, if you've been to a funeral lately, or if you've seen a dead body um, in any time in your past, you know that they don't do anything. They have no power to respond. It reminds me of, a, uh, I've seen this a handful of times when I've been in surgery. In my job, I sell medical equipment, orthopedic equipment in the operating room. And I was, I've seen a handful of people die on the table. And uh, there was a, um, a room next to our room. I was doing a case in this room, and they were, the door opened in the room across the hall, and I saw the nurse or the doctor, I don't know who it was, up on top of the bed, hands doing chest compressions on this man who was laying there uh, unresponsive. And he had tubes coming out everywhere, but the, the color of his face was gone. He was not white. He was gray in how he was looking. They were giving him CPR. They were shocking his heart. They were telling him to live. Get up. Breathe. Fight. The family's in the hallway begging, please don't go. Please come back to us. We want you to live. Please respond. Do something. But 
all he did was lay there, unresponsive, no power to do anything whatsoever. That's what this verse tells us was our state before Christ, dead in sin. The most important thing to understand is you could do nothing. You could not choose anything. You know why? Because you're dead and dead people don't do anything. They just lay there. Now look back at the verse. You were dead in what? He says, in your trespasses and sins. You're dead in sin. In sin. Since Adam, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, um, uh, Romans 6, the payment for sin is death. You aren't dead by some freak accident or some rare disease. You are dead just like every other human being who has ever lived. And if we put the right type of lenses on, we'd see that, this wor- that the world is full of the living dead, right? right? If we put the right lenses on, we'd see that you go to Disneyland, it's full of dead people. And if you quote the movie, it's just not worth it, but that's before your time now. Sixth Sense, did anybody see that? I see dead people, okay. Anyway, you're physically alive, but spiritually dead. Verse two, you're dead in your sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. What's the course of this world? You love the world. You love the sins in the world. You're under the, 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 the prince of the power of the air, that verse says, that is Satan himself. You're under his jurisdiction. John 8 says that he's the fa- your father is the devil. You do the desires of your father. He's a murderer. He's a liar. It comes from his nature. You do the same things. Why? Because that's who you are in your heart. We do not belong to God. We do not respond to God. We belong to Satan, and we respond to our sin. Verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We all engaged in the sin and the lust and the desires of this world, indulging in it. We found great pleasure. We found great happiness. We wanted sin more than anything else. And that sin may take a ton of different forms. It might be the form of having power. It might be the form of having sex. It might be the form of having money. It might be the form of being lazy. It might be in the form of um, being the man. Whatever it might be, this comes to all of us in different ways, and we indulge in that. I haven't done this for a while, but my daughters and I make these little tiny lava cakes. It's a souffle. And I used to think of souffles, but I didn't know what they were as, like, I'm, I don't want one of those because it just doesn't sound very good. But then I found out that you take a dive of chocolate and you just melt it down, mix it with a couple of other things, a little tiny bit of flour, you put it into a white ramekin kind of a cup and you bake it for about 25 minutes. And the outside turns into this nice kind of... I don't want to say it's crispy, but it's a, what would you call the outside of that? Yeah, like a crust. Like, there's a, yes, she's our chef. I'm deferring to her. To Dr. Ike for um, German and, uh, yeah, names of people that are dead. To Darnese about food. So, but in the middle is what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just lava. It's like molten chocolate. So you put a scoop of vanilla ice cream on the top of this thing, and as soon as you do it, it breaks through, and the whole thing just kind of explodes out with just molten could die of chocolate, and it's phenomenal. And we make it, and it's delicious. And I sat there, and we haven't done it for a while, and I just delight in this particular dessert. I revel in it. It's so good. It's like the perfect blend of flavors, and I just savor all of that. And really, as you're thinking about your favorite dessert, that is how man functions with his sin. It's how all human beings do. We indulge in our, 
in our sin and all that the world has to offer. We savor it. We relish in it. We delight in that. You lay in bed at night fantasizing about certain things. You go to work thinking about what you're going to do when you can you just have freedom of mind. All these things are what we do. And it says in verse 3 then, we were by nature, this is who we were born as, we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. We were not children of God. We were children under, born to wrath, under the judgment of God. So listen to this. Man's basic problem is not a lack of self-esteem. It's not an imbalance in his chi, okay? It's not that he has a, a lack of ability to talk to God. He doesn't just need to say a few prayers to clean up his act or do a few good deeds to get right with the big guy upstairs, He doesn't need a sex change operation so he can be the real person that's inside of him trying to get out. He doesn't need therapy to get rid of his repressed memories. He isn't a victim of the circumstances that are beyond his control. Man's problem is that he was born a dead man, incapable of relating to God, no ability to respond to the commands of God. There is nothing he can do to raise himself up to God. He is dead. That's what the scripture teaches So back to our question, can man choose God? The answer is no. Man will never choose God. Man has no ability to choose God. It brings up this question, does man then have free will? Does he? The answer? is no. Man forfeited his free will in the garden a long time ago when he chose to sin. According to Martin Luther, he describes this by saying it is the bondage of the will. How he describes sin. Jesus said a little differently in John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. This is tough. R.C. Sproul, maybe this will help you, said it this way. We can no more assist the Holy Spirit in the quickening of our souls to spiritual life. You following so far? This is an important quote, check this. We can no more assist the Holy Spirit in the quickening of our souls to spiritual life. We cannot help in any way this process any more than Lazarus could help Jesus raise himself from the dead. Why? Because he was dead and he can't do anything. Each person is totally without hope, Ephesians 2, without strength to obey, Romans 5, and without excuse, Romans chapter 2, verse 1. And you've got to excuse me if you think I'm belaboring this point and you've heard this before. But this concept is replete in the scriptures and it's so important to understand. Man cannot choose God. And while the gospel commands dead men to rise and dead men to believe, and dead men to understand, and dead men to repent, the gospel commands dead people to do what they frankly cannot do. You know that the gospel is a command. Repent and believe. Those are commands issued to every human being. But check this. It's not until verse 4, we're still in Ephesians 2, and this is the sweetest thing. It is the best news, because in verse 4, in light of all this, it says but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, 
Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. This is it. God had to do it. God, it's not a story in the Bible about good men doing good things. It's a story about a good God who sent his son to redeem a fallen man. God had to come down and give life. He had to open the eyes of sinners. Such good news, God had to do it. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter four. Can you guys turn there really quick? It's not my notes, but let me look this up because I love this and I think it will make this really clear. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 4, we're just about done. In verse three, it says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what's happening there? Satan has come and he has blinded the minds. These dead people have a second problem. Not only are they dead, but Satan has come and pulled a veil over their eyes so they can't even see things. All right, but look at verse six. It says, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. Remember Genesis 1-3? God said what? Let there be light. And from darkness, there exploded light into the universe. He has shown in our hearts, verse six, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The only way that you see anything is that God said, let there be light in your heart. And the dead heart full of darkness that was blinded by Satan himself has all of a sudden exploded into light and you understand because God did it, right? And you see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. And it is 100% the work of a sovereign God. I think that's pretty amazing. And when we contemplate our salvation and we think, well, I wasn't that bad. My sin isn't that bad. I could have been worse. No, not at all. We are desperate, flawed, enslaved, and dead in sin. And it was, listen to these two words, but God, right? That was the direction we were heading. Think about your pathway heading towards destruction, but God. It may have happened when you were in seventh grade. It may have happened three weeks ago. You were on a pathway as a dead man floating downstream, but God. And we will do one of two things with this. I said it earlier, I'll say it again. We will reject this truth or we will embrace it and fall on our faces and worship and praise him for what he has done and the work of Christ by accomplishing our salvation. And there's more here, but we're out of time. Uh, because you have to get, this is the negative side of everything, and you gotta come back next week because we talk about how in light of this, Jesus fixes everything and the whole mechanism of this. And the next question we're gonna answer is, if we cannot choose God, which we just established, right? Then did God choose us? That's the whole topic of predestination and election. And it's a heavy one, like, well, why did God choose this one, not that one? Well, how is that fair? And how does that work? How about this? Did Jesus die for everyone? Or did he just die for those he chose? (laughs) Or if Jesus chooses you, can you reject him or resist him? And finally, can a person lose their salvation? We'll look at all these things next week. Spoiler alert, you can't lose your salvation. Okay, but we'll come back to that next week. We'll look at what the scripture says. Let's pray and we'll wrap this up.